If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open with me this, today to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, look in the insert that is found in your bulletin or over your neighbor's shoulder if you're comfortable doing that. We are in the third week of our study of this ancient letter, a letter written some uh, 1,950 or so years ago by one of the most well-known followers of Jesus of Nazareth, the Apostle Peter. And remember, for those of you who have been here the last few weeks, Peter wrote it to and for the benefit of early followers of Jesus living in the Roman Empire at that time who were beginning to be persecuted on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus and the way of life that that was producing. And so Peter speaks and gives a balm for the soul but he also speaks a word of exhortation in regards to what this life ought to look like for them. And I noticed as I was sitting down this week and began to study this passage that we focused a lot in this series on individual words, much like we did years ago when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes and those sermons were characterized by words. We've looked at words, right? Uh, the word exile, and all that is wrapped around that identity for us as exiles. And last week we looked at hope, a living hope, and attached to that hope uh, the need to, to worship the God of living hope. Well, I've got another word for you today. It's the word story. It's the word story. Again, like last week, there is more in the insert than you need uh, this morning. That is not a Rena mistake. That is a Nate mistake. That is a Nate thinking he can bite off more than he can chew moment early in the week. And so uh, we're only going to read, I'm only going to read uh, through verse 14. That's all we're going to get to this morning. Um, but I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we gather this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning where we left off last week and reading through verse 14. Listen as I read. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin this morning with a question 
The question is, what's your story? What's your story? It's a question that I, and I suspect many of you, use when we meet someone and want to begin to know them. I'm Nate, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a husband, I'm a father of five. I'm a pastor, I was born in Washington, raised in New Jersey, married in Georgia, went to seminary in California, and have been in Washington for nine years. That's part of my story. Of course, there's a lot more to my story. Story is a big word. It can be answered in a variety of ways, and it's an important word, not just to us as Christians, but to us as people, as humans, to everyone in the world. Think how much our world is captivated by stories. We watch sitcoms, we go to movies, we listen to music, we go to plays, and we read books, all of which wraps us up in stories. I'd like you to listen to this quote by Lisa Cron. She is an author and speaker who coaches budding novelists, and one of her books is entitled Story Genius. And it's not the title of her book that I love so much as the subtitle of, their book, of her book, which is, it's very Puritan-esque. If you know anything about the Puritans' titles, they're very verbose, that means very long. And her subtitle of Story Genius is this, how to use brain science to go beyond outlining and write a riveting novel before you waste three years writing 327 pages that go nowhere. It's a great subtitle. Anyway, she writes in the book, she says, I believe writers are the most powerful people in the world. We can transport readers to places they've never been, catapult them into situations they've only dreamed of, and reveal universal truths that might just alter their perception of reality. We say, wow, the power of words. About these truths, the former pastor Eugene Peterson wrote this, we live in a world impoverished of story. So it is not surprising that many of us have picked up the bad habit of extracting truths, in quotes, from the stories that we read. And I'd say that's true. We were made for story, but because so many of our stories stink, they're broken, and they're baggaged, we attach ourselves to other stories, and we live through them, and we attempt to make them our own in some way. What's your story? There's a number of ways we could answer that, but here is pastors, here in Pastor Peter's, exhortation to the church, an exhortation ultimately given by the Spirit of God that created you, that breathed life into you, he speaks into and defines and brings guidance to your story. Let me explain what I mean. Two things, two truths I want to meditate on as we walk through these verses. The first is this, you are part of a grand story. 
It's the first thing Peter says to us as the church. You are part of a grand story. As we pick up where we left off last week in this glorious first chapter, Peter is in the midst of stirring our hearts with the gospel of grace. He's reminding them, he's reminding us that we are part of of God's grand story. Of course, that's where he began a few weeks ago, expounding on the work of the triune God in our salvation. Last week, reminding us of the character of our God, the God who gives, the God who creates, the God who guards, the God who even takes away. And he ended all of that glory and all of that majesty and that call to worship by beginning to turn towards us in verses eight and nine, reminding us that we're not second-class citizens because we have not seen Jesus, because we have not touched Jesus as Peter did. Well, here in the beginning of our passage for today, in the beginning of verse 10, Peter really begins to pile it on. Not only are we not second-class believers, but we, ours, here in this new covenant era, this post-Jesus era, ours is a privileged time and status. You say, what? Let's unpack and focus on verses 10 through 12 for a few minutes. First of all, Notice that there's that word grace again. Yeah, this is a grand story of grace. Grace that verse 10 says was always intended for you. We'll return to that in just a moment. We've talked and worshiped, we've talked about and we've worshiped this grace already this morning. We've meditated it on, on it the past weeks. It's nothing less than the sovereign God of the universe choosing you according to his mercy and pleasure through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus who now lives in and through you by the work of his spirit. And this is all grounded in eternity and defining us today. So this is a story of grace. But in the middle of all that, in the middle of eternity past, and the work of the triune God, and the plan of redemption, and today is history. History, the unfolding of that story. And that's where Peter goes next. He goes to the prophets the prophets, to these men of old chosen, many of them reluctantly, to be mouthpieces of God for his people. You see, they spoke of this grace that we enjoy, but they didn't just speak, Peter says. They searched and they inquired. You see, much of what they spoke Even they didn't understand. Even they didn't get. Listen to what the Lord says to Habakkuk. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. 
and in the wisdom of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, all the words that Yahweh gave to his prophets to speak to the people of God were, were meaningful to their original audience. They serve their purpose to that original audience thousands of years ago, but according to Peter, behind all of it, they were for you. Those words were for you and for me. That matters to a church suffering. That matters to a church struggling to find its identity, struggling to feel like it really matters. In the face of a looming Roman Empire and an emperor with full power to do whatever he wants, to be reminded that you're part of God's grand story, that the prophets spoke for you. Whoa. These prophets wondered what it all meant. They wondered what was to come, and so they did more than ponder. They searched, they inquired, they dug around. And what did they dig around? They dug around the Scriptures. Who would this Messiah be? When would he come? What would his reign be? Who would be his people? They remember the words of Isaiah. For to us a child is born, a wonderful counselor, what? A mighty God, what? An everlasting father, what does that mean? Prince of peace, They went to the words of Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. They considered Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 33, in those days and at that time, what time they didn't know, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Moses spoke these words in Deuteronomy 18. How much did Moses understand about this this word about him? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. See, Peter reminds the church that they spoke for you. They spoke for us trying to understand the mystery hidden for ages, the prophets spoke of the grand story that God was writing. And how beautifully these verses in 1 Peter 1 affirm great truths about the scriptures that we believe. That there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the whole Bible, this entire book, is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. There is one gospel and one unfolding covenant of grace, one people of God. When Jesus walked on that Emmaus road with those men in Luke 24, he brought clarity not just to those passages that I read, but can you imagine all the other types and things that he pointed those men to, things that pointed to him for generation. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the Jonah who was buried in the deeps and who rose forth. And he is the Joseph sold by his brothers and yet eventually for their salvation. He is the greater Samson, the one deliverer that we've always needed. And we could go on and on through the entirety 
of these scriptures that the prophets searched. All of this is God's story, but it is your story, Peter declares. As C.S. Lewis wrote, we are not the playwright, we are not the producer, we are not even the audience. We are on the stage. Indeed, what a humbling and encouraging reality for these first century believers and for us here today. We are part of and defined by, and in one respect, the point of something that has been working itself out for ages in time and space and history. But Peter goes even further. He dips into the deeps of the spiritual realm. Not only the prophets foretold it, not only the prophets inquire about it, but among the angelic host, there has always been this intense, holy curiosity about what the Creator is doing. As one pastor said, the angels are obsessed with the gospel. They're obsessed with this story Ephesians 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. We are part of a story, God's grand story, and there's still so much to come. There's so much glory still to be had, but here's the thing, just as the sufferings of Christ preceded his glory, so our sufferings precede our glory. Peter reminds the church in the first century that we identify with Christ in this way, And yet the import of all this in the lives of these first century believers and us here today is be patient, be encouraged. You are not alone. You are part of God's story. It's the first thing I want us to think about and meditate on this morning. And that takes us through verse 12 and leads us, if you look with me, to chapter, or excuse me, to verse 13. And verse 13 is a transition, a transition verse, not just for the rest of the letter, but to the rest of the, the way of life that Peter is going to describe that we're going to be talking about for the weeks to come. And that leads us to the second truth I want us to meditate on, and that's this. The grand story calls us to a different story. The grand story that you are a part of, God's grand story, calls you to a different story. How does verse 13 begin? With therefore, and you know the rule, when you see a therefore, you ask what it is there for. Therefore, in light of the gospel riches that have been given to you, in light of all that I have said, the generations of unfolding revelation that culminated in Jesus and was for you, 
in light of all that God has done, Peter says, roll up your sleeves. Get your game face on. As some of my kids would say, let's do this. That's what Peter's saying. In light of all that's happened, in light of all that I've spoken about, let's do this. That's American common language for two phrases that stand out here in these verses. The first phrase is this, preparing your minds for action. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. The literal picture here is gird up the loins of your mind. That's not helpful, is it? Gird up the loins of your mind. Peter is giving the imagery to the first century church of the first century garb of wearing an outer garment, a long robe, and that whenever someone wanted to run, they would take that robe and bring it up and tuck it in their belt in order to create freedom for their legs so they could run fast. And he's saying, gird up. It's kind of our equivalent to rolling up your sleeves. Gird up the loins of your mind. And what else does he say? And being sober-minded. Well, we know what sober is. It's the opposite of being intoxicated. Peter is calling the church to a spiritual focus and alertness as they look to their living hope that is theirs, the inheritance that's guaranteed by the Spirit, the glory that is before them. Focus. Because Peter knows the human heart. God knows the human heart. God knows the propensity for us to be spiritually lazy, to be intoxicated with the things of this world. And Peter exhorts the church to be different, to write a different story. Because you are part of a different story. And do you notice the two phrases or the, two, the, the word that ties these things together? It's the mind. It's the mind. The different story that we're called to doesn't begin with the emotions, how we experience God, how we feel, where it seems some churches focus, nor does it begin with the will, where others focus, don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, you know, that kind of thing. It begins with the mind, with right thinking. Now, don't get me wrong, the heart and the emotions and the will are all essential and must be addressed. But Peter says you need to begin by thinking differently. Literally, we are called to think through things. It's not the point of the passage, but it's a good reminder for us as parents and for you young people that ours, our faith, is not a blind faith. Christianity is a rational, thinking faith. And so the doubts that come into your mind, the questions that you're come into your mind that you think, well, there's no answers for those because we're simply supposed to believe, it's not true. There are answers, maybe not sufficient answers for your hearts, but there are answers because ours is a thinking 
faith. And so Peter says, think through things. Prepare your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded, single-focused, spiritually focused, thinking through things. When Jesus tells some of his followers in Matthew 6 about anxiety, he talks about anxiety. Remember, he talks about feeding the sparrows, and then he says, oh, you of little faith, He was saying that because they were letting their minds forget about the power of God in feeding everything on this planet. So why do you worry about your own lives? So being called to a different story, we need to ensure that it is the promises of God that become the reality of our story and not simply what we see or what we're experiencing. So the first step to this different story is to love Jesus with your mind, to let the story that you're a part of define you and everything you do. We're gonna talk a lot about this in the coming weeks as we walk through the rest of this letter, a letter, remember, that would have been heard all at once, you're getting it piecemeal, Week after week after week, the privilege we have of digesting God's word in this way. But just today, let's think about verse 14. We'll go to holiness and speak more about that later. But verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, live a life of nonconformity, Peter essentially says. That, that old Nate that lived for himself, that was overly self-absorbed and self-protective, just doing what felt good for me, that life needs to go because the grand story calls me to a different story. Now, we could go off in a million different directions in terms of applying this, but Let me just give you three as we close. Three specifics that came to my mind this week. And I think that I've spoken about these things before to you in some capacity. But let me give three specifics that if you hold this life, you'll be different than the typical American aspirations around you. It's a different story. So the three, the three applications or the three words to close us are risk, retirement, and our kids. Risk, retirement, and our kids. Risk. Let's talk about risk. How would risk matter in a different story? Well, we have an emergency management guru, Bo, who would certainly call... Uh, certainly uh, caution us against certain risks. And I, I would agree, we ought not be foolish in what we do. But as one pastor has said, there, there is a certain risk that is right. There is a risk that is right, even if it costs you. I talked a little this morning about in our discipleship hour about the fear and shame that grips us in trying, to, in trying to share the gospel, in confronting people, 
with our worldview and, and why their worldview is wrong. There's a risk in doing that, isn't there? There's a risk of reputation. There's a risk of maybe even something greater, of, of a berating, of a job even losing or going away. But there's a certain risk that's right. That was the experience, of course, of, of six missionaries in the 1950s who went into an Ecuadorian jungle to tell a tribal people of Christ, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, among them, a story very familiar to many of you. They lost their lives because they risked them, because their lives were not all about self-preservation. Their lives were about a different story where at times risk is essential. Yes, they died. But that's not because God forgot them. That's not because they were foolish. As their sufferings came sooner than expected, so did their glory. So the different story calls us to a different kind of risk. How about retirement? The American story seems to be Work until you have enough money to play for the rest of your days. And I would say, sure, there are seasons in life. There is a time to step away. There is a need to rest. But living a different story, such as the story we're a part of, does the work ever end? No. We have retirees in our midst who are living a different story, who are working for the kingdom of God. Risk, retirement, and then our kids. What do you want for your kids? What do I want for my kids? Ease, comfort, success in all they do especially the ability to care for me in my old age. That's what I always tell my kids. Or do we want them poured out for the grand story, even if that means the mission field? Even if that means not having success as the world looks at success? We could go on and on and on. The point is, and the point that Peter pleads with the church is, your story is different. You need to be out of step. But your story is so much better than anything that is being written around you. So believe it. Embrace it. And begin to live it by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for its encouragement of who we are, for its call to who we need to be. And Father, I would ask that as you know these people better than I know them, better than they know themselves, that you would prick and prod and poke and do your work in them by your word, that we might be, as Peter will call us later, a peculiar people, a different people, 
who have put off the former ignorance and are living for a different story, a better story, the story. Father, give us grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.